Well, welcome. I think this is like the 26th book or something for depth and practice. I forgot the exact number. Um, so what we've been doing for the last book or two is we've been reading till about eight o'clock, wherever a good um, end comes. So we're not tied to exactly a time, but more like the end of a chapter, unless the chapter is going on forever and that sometimes happens and then we just stop. And then we write for 10 minutes and then we, um, here's another person. And then we discuss either reading what we've written or uh, just talking about what came up as we wrote or as we thought we're reading or not saying anything. And before we get started, we sit for 10 minutes. We hardly read. So, and we'll read in alphabetical order by how your name appears alphabetically on your little square. Okay, where is the square? Any questions before we start? Where is the square? Oh. Where are the squares? They're rectangles. Yes. They're rectangles. Mm -hmm. Where we all right. are. But I yeah. see only four people. Oh, oh well, then, then go to oh. gallery view. Okay, let's see. Where is the gallery view? In the upper right corner, it says view. Oh, view. Okay. <clears throat> then if uh, you click, yes, I see it now. Thank you. If you, click, if you click on participants, you'll see a list of the participants. Ah, uh, yes, yes. I right. see it now at the bottom. I have a new computer, so <laughs> <laughs> things are somewhere else <laughs> than right. I used to for the past decade. And poor Emily had her eyes dilated. That's why she's squinting. <laughs> she's going to try to, to see. I guess you won't be able to read. Emily, right? I, I probably can't read, so okay. just skip over I, me. We've all had our eyes dilated. I think we understand. Trouty, are you going to be Trouty uh, for the... For the I, I don't know. Um, so Would that be I, okay, Trouty, since that's the name you have in your rectangle? Sure, yeah. You'll be yeah, a because team. everybody okay. sees that, and yes. <clears throat> okay, so let's sit for ten minutes, and I'll mute up, mute, mute all, and then we'll start. Tim, before you do that, yes. Do you know how I get to the precepts class? Oh, <laughs> you click. Uh, that's tomorrow night. No, that's yeah, that's tomorrow night. Is it this? Was today Monday? Yeah. Today is still Today's Monday, Monday, yes. Sorry, thank you. But you're welcome here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this retirement's got me, I guess. Hey. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good okay, night. Nick. Before we start, how about if everyone introduces himself and, um, 
uh, tell where they live since we have such an assortment of places. And I'll, I'll call your name. I'm going to do it just in the order of my squares. Trouty, you're first. My name is Trouty, and I live uh, in the West Mountains in Austin. And Cody? My name is Cody, and I live in Copperas Cove, Texas. Donna? Um, Donna, and I live in Zilker in Austin. Sandra? And Sandra, I'm living in San Antonio. Chet? I'm living in Asheville for the last six months. Uh, Stephanie? Uh, Stephanie, and I live in Austin. And Christian? Hi there, Christian. Raymond, I live in Austin as well. And Peg? I'm Peg. I live in Wilmette, Illinois. Ellen? I'm Ellen Hippard, and I live in North Chesterfield, Virginia, which is essentially Richmond, Virginia. And Emily? I'm Emily, and I live in San Antonio, Texas. And Nancy? I'm Nancy. I live in Dallas, Texas. And Nelda? And Nelda, and I live in Austin. Mitch? Uh, I'm Mitch, and I live in Austin also. <clears throat> and Milan? I'm Milan, and I live in Mexico City, but spend a lot of time in Lakeway, Austin. Okay. So, uh, how about you, Kim? And I'm Kim, and I'm in Austin. Thank you, Nancy. And so let's start with uh, Chet, and I'm going to sh screen share the book. <clears throat> we read one paragraph at a time, unless it's a very short paragraph, and then we'll read two. And you can ask a question or make a comment at any point. Kim, where did you want? Did you want to start with the uh, editor's preface, or where? We, we always start? start with the with the. Um, is there a preface and an introduction? Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> let's let's start here. Fantastic! It's on the screen. Um, Kim, I did have one question for you. Is there a sure. list of those twenty-seven books? I'm absolutely amazed. Uh, oh, they're, they're on the web. They're on the web under, I think, teaching or, or study. And uh, then, you, and then there, you go to depth and practice. Is there any chance of running out of books in 100 years from now? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but right. I think it's a good question because um, when, when I started in photography, there were only like 100 kind of important books. So it was pretty limited. Have any of the books been repeated in the, um, in the? Uh, no. Or, okay, interesting. No. Though, though a few of us also... have, have um, the Chan Buddhism book, a few, a few of us got together for about six months and we're reading that because we missed it in depth and practice. But other than that, I don't think so. So, so depth and practice page, has links to the recordings for all of those uh, books that we've read together and the discussions that we had while we were reading them. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, should I start? Uh, 
should I start or should I wait? Yes. Okay. So editor's preface, and I'm just reading this first page that you have on the screen. The first paragraph. First paragraph. Okay. So I apologize for my pronunciation. It's horrible, but I'll do my best. So Dani and Katagiri was a good at figuring out how things work. So he might have become a scientist or an engineer. But when he was 18, he left behind his work on diesel engines and became a Zen priest. Then through Buddhist study and spiritual practice, he investigated how the universe works. Something that, something that works is using energy. From ancient times, people in the East have developed spiritual, medical, and martial art traditions based on the flow of universal energy as the life force called Ki, Ki, or Chi, Ki, or Ki. In medieval Jap Japan, the great Zen master, Iha Dogen, used the term total dynamic working, or Zenki. In recent times, Katagiri Roshi marveled at the rhythm of life and observed that understanding how it functions can help us to live in harmony with life. Hey, uh, Christian. Buddhism may be approached as philosophy, psychology, religion, spiritual path, any or all of these. Katagiri Roshi also saw it as something akin to a science of reality. He often said, I am not talking about an idea, I am talking about something real. The creative energy of life is working from moment to moment and it includes us, so we can experience it, enjoy it, and use it as a beneficial force. That is Katagai Roshi's main message in this book. Katagiri Roshi moved from Japan to the United States in the 1960s and then taught here until his death in 1990. Adapting to life in America, where he was no longer fully Eastern, yet never fully Western, he developed a unique, lively, and often lyrical way of expressing himself that bridged two worlds and drew many followers. His warm presence and dignified confidence in Zen practice inspired many people to study Buddhism with him. But to study with Katagiri Roshi required a willingness to dive deep below the surface of Buddhism and into a bewildering world where things didn't always seem to make sense. While editing his talks for this book, I formulated two shortcuts for finding my way through difficult technical terms and philosophical discourses. Buddhism is a creation story and Buddhism is a love story. Well, that's interesting. These two principles gave me a place to rest my mind and heart when his teaching was complicated. Well, I hope we learn more about that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm next. Emily. Well, Emily can't read because she, oh, that's she right. can't that's see. That's right. His teaching can be complicated, but Katagiri Roshi sometimes condenses it into memorable mottos. Three of my favorites in this book are relax your frontal lobe, <laughs> let the flower of your life force bloom, walk together hand in hand. 
These pithy exhortations cut right through my struggles with life. They cue me to stop fretting and take refuge in the energy at the heart of life. They also show me how to engage with emptiness, interdependent co-origination, and all sentient beings as three aspects of one <coughs> cosmic energy system. When I put them together, I find the triple treasure of Buddhism, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Okay, I think it's me, right? Yes. Many of the talks that I chose for this book reflect Katagiri's Roshi's love of reading and reflecting on Buddhist writings. He once said, sometimes I am alone in my study, just thinking, contemplating Buddha's teaching without doing anything, just sitting there. That is the thing that makes me relax and feel joyful. Um, Malen, do you, oh, uh, do you want to read? Yes, I'll read. Uh, great. The quotes and excerpts from Buddhist writing, writings that Katagiri Roshi comments on here are various, variously his own translations, other published translations or recollections from memory. When he didn't indicate the source, I did my best to identify any that were taken from published translations. And then I inserted the translator's name into the text. These mentions refer you to the bibliography or bibliography at the end of this book, where you can find those publications along with some other resources that have been helpful to me. Now, Mitch. The title of this book is inspired by something in Ihai Dogen Shobogenzo Kuge, Flowers in the Sky. Dogen quotes a wonderful statement that a student of the Chinese master, Sakiso Keisho, Shengho Zhengzhu, 807 to 888, made when he awakened to reality. Here is Thomas Cleary's translation, 1886. Light shines silently throughout infinity. In science and in spiritual life, Light is a way of transmitting energy through space. We constantly receive that energy. That's why spiritual teachers always tell us that we are already enlightened. Nancy, I think you're next after Mitch. When we actually experience the energy that flows through everything, Life makes sense and contentment appears. What this Katarichi, Katachiri Roshi recommends Sazen, Citizen Meditation, as an essential spiritual practice. So I'd like to say something about meditation before turning you over to Katachiri Roshi's teaching. The human mind is a wonderful storyteller constantly weaving narratives about ourselves and our lives from threads of thought, emotion, and sensation. This aspect of the mind is useful, but it never tells us the whole story. 
Meditation lets us witness the stories we tell ourselves. We see how our busy mind works, how it limits and controls us. And then we calmly step aside from it. When you step aside and let go of your story, you create a space. The space between your story and your life is the place where you discover the deeper nature of human life. Thanks, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. You're muted, Stephanie. It's Sandra. Oh, Sandra. Uh, Good. Sandra's next. In sassing, we sit up in a straight posture, let our thoughts pass by, and pay concentrate attention to our natural breathing. The English word spirit comes from the Latin spirit, to breathe. In yoga practice, the Sanskrit word prana represents the breath of life or the cosmic energy of the life force. The energy is already yours, so welcome. Welcome into your awareness, tuning in to the universal life force. Whereas you see yourself in a different way. You belong to the flow of life. That realization brings relief and joy. It also changes your way of thinking about your life and guides you to live in a beneficial way, giving wisdom and compassion to yourself and others. As you study with this book, it's not necessary to understand perfectly everything that Katagiri Roshi is saying. If you find some of it difficult to follow, please don't be discouraged. As he would say, Don't make your head ache. Just quietly accept his words with openness to receiving his life energy as smoothly as he transmits it to you through those words. Let his energy calm your mind and warm your heart. Then share your own life energy with others. This is practicing the Buddha way. Andrea Martin. He's a student at um, Minnesota uh, Zen Meditation Center that Katagiri founded. Oh, is it me? Uh, well, uh, Sashank just um, joined us. Do you want to read? Uh, <laughs> sure. Is it? And we just read a paragraph. And if you have any questions as you read. You're welcome, or as anyone else reads, you're welcome to jump in. Sure. I just think that's what we just read was such a friendly, energizing way of thinking of meditation. You know, it's something like really enticing to do. Okay. All right. But uh, you'll in the in the you'll see the if the participant list, and then you can tell where you'll fit in next round. Okay, but go on and read. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. The energy of life. One time when I was walking in the street in Tokyo, I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a car. It said, respect life, force, and life. I really wanted to see the driver's face, but the car left. 
then I started thinking, what do you mean by life force and life? What's the difference between life force and life? It's me now. <laughs> so, okay. well, life doesn't come into existence without life force. Life force is given to you. So when you become conscious of your life, your life force is already there. It is your life right here, right now. You cannot build up your life force after your birth, but life is something you can build up. If you totally accept the energy of your life force, you can use it to embark on a new life from now on. How? This is the main point of Buddhist teaching. I have a question. Uh, it, it, when they say life force, remind me a lot what um, I learned about the Qigong, because Qigong is, defi is uh, defined as a life force. Qi. Qi is uh, equal to life force. How do you... Um, made a difference or it's not a difference. I know he mentioned the beginning in the uh, preface. There's, it's not different. It's not different, no, okay. It's it's okay. key, it's key. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what we were saying, okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, Sandra, is, is that something that can be developed as you see it? Yes, uh, with the practice of Qigong, that's when you can develop that Qi. So life is something we're given, but life force is something we develop. No, it's the other no, way. No, no, no. It's the other way around. It's, yeah. it's there, and we just cultivating. The oh, okay. The Qigong is cultivate that life force. It's not we are creating. It's already there. So we're just cultivating in our body. Can, can you use that life force for good and for bad in the sense that the life force is the energy that if you don't hone it with skillful means or with uh, values, that it could actually do bad also? You're talking about in the context of Qigong? No, there is no good, it's, it's not for bad things. Really, basically, you keep cultivating the qi in your body through the movement and the breathing and your mind concentration. It's the life that can be shaped in wholesome or unwholesome ways, but the life force itself is a pure thing. Mm -hmm. It's without good or bad, it's just a force. Like light. Right. And so the goal as a Buddhist is to channel that into ways that would support life and support the precepts. You don't really channel it, it's boundless. It's more like you uh, relinquish the things that you're using to cover it. Hmm. Or the things that um, are hindering you from your awareness of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, confusing because I'm thinking of the force as an energy of that could be turned in bad and good, but that's not it. It's just getting out of the way of what is just present and that inherently, I think you had once said that when Buddha was enlightened, he smiled. And so that's kind of saying that this inherent nature of this force is a good, a good, there is no such thing as bad or good. It's just, yeah, I think, thank you. Yes. Yeah, I like to think of it from a, from a flow standpoint, 
that it's flowing into um, the chi the element, you're flowing into that interdependent dynamic that connects you with, with all things, which is, you know, the idea is I think it's inherent good when you take you, you know, out of your um, sort of, you know, self-grasping on, on with yourself to, to focus on that flow and interconnectivity. So anyways. I love that. Uh, I think we're back at the beginning, so chat. Okay. Proudy read? Yeah. Yes, I did. Oh, okay. That was the last one, I think. Okay. So if I'm correct, the purpose is, we're at the purpose of spiritual practice. Uh, if you read Buddhist scriptures, they seem to say that the purpose of spiritual practice is to turn delusion into enlightenment or guide ordinary people to become Buddhas or holy beings. So maybe we can, we think we can reach nirvana by removing delusion or attaining wisdom and compassion by eliminating ego or become a Buddha by sitting zazen, chanting or whatever practice you do. But practically speaking, it's very difficult to remove human ego, desires and delusions. So we have to think carefully about Buddhist teachings and understand more deeply what they are saying. So Christian, you're next. I may help if I unmute myself. Uh, Shakyamuni Buddha taught that a magnificent event is unfolding in every aspect of everyday life. Vivid living energy is constantly at work, creating and supporting your life. It is just like a fire that is eternal and boundless. Whoever you are, your life is very precious because the original energy of life is working in your life. Buddhism uses the technical term Dharma to describe the functioning of this great original energy. But no matter how long we try to explain Dharma, we always fail because it is completely beyond words. Still, even though you cannot explain Dharma, it is alive in you. <clears throat> so you can use it to take care of your life. To take care of your life is to burn the flame of your life force in everything you do. In the realm of science or business, literature, sports, the arts, or whatever you do, there is a way to touch eternity. That is spiritual practice. Doing something as spiritual practice is to invoke the life force energy deep in your own life and use it to grow your life. Growth gives you room to cultivate wisdom and compassion, love and generosity, enough to create a wonderful world for you and all beings. <coughs> we study and practice Buddhist teachings in order to go deep into our own life. There you discover your original place, the place where all beings live together in peace before we exist as individual beings. From that place, you can join the flow of life, living in harmony with all beings and walking together hand in hand. This is the guideline of Buddhist study 
for Buddhist study and practice. Would it be you, Kim? I think it's Emily. No, Emily's not reading. That's right, it's Kim. So whatever practice you do, Buddhist practice, Christian practice, or non-religious practice, when you become aware of the magnificent energy of being, of being arising in your body and mind, you feel fully alive. You are boundless and broad, compassionate and kind. This is the guideline for living as a human being. So, so Peg, one question I have is we, you know, have been going from Chan Buddhism to Zen is there seems to be not, it, one doesn't seem to be just like the other. And what, um, what in, the, in, in the sense that, that Guo Gu seems to have more of a method. And this seems to be more like by the seat of your pants. Well, I think he, um, Sheng Yun developed methods and systematized things because his followers were struggling with the kind of um, open awareness practice or you know, um, silent elimination practice that didn't have any handholds on it. So I think that's, uh, I wouldn't necessarily characterize all of Chan on the basis of Sheng Yun's teachings because certainly they, they vary across teachers. Okay, and also probably that's a good point that that um, you know what was needed in the situation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and then also that it was a different country. Yes, and there's to, um, uh, I think there's a little bit of a difference in that um, when you're uh, giving a Dharma talk, for example, you might be talking in more uh, general and more theoretical ways than you would with your students. Um, where you're going to be more specific and give a little bit more uh, pointing instructions. Hmm. Okay. Sometimes um, I was going to add that it sometimes feel like some kind of strategical, like tactical wrestling between, you know, the, the so-called gradual approach and the sudden approach, and mm -hmm. just like how even even in Zen, right, the sixth patriarch Huinang who was. Yes, although I think um, more has been made of that distinction than people, uh, you know, really experienced it, um, because um, most Zen and Chan teachers use both uh, approaches. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Depending on what the student needs and where the student is, and yeah. So there's a lot of preparation for the sudden enlightenment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, like the overnight successes in, in authorship. Okay, should we go ahead? Yes. Make of yourself a light. Shakyamuni Buddha gave one of his most famous teachings just before he passed away. Speaking to his disciple Ananda, who was very confused about losing his teacher, Buddha said, make the Dharma your light rely upon it, do not depend on any other thing. Make of yourself a light, rely upon it, do not depend on anyone else. Mm. So Peg, in 
in that verse, when he says, make the Dharma your light, he's referring to Dharma like he did back on this previous page where it says, Buddha uses the technical term Dharma to describe, et cetera, et cetera. No, it's a Dharma is almost impossible to describe. So that's what he means by Dharma in that verse. I think that um, Dharma he's referring there to is the teachings that he's given them. Teachings, okay. So not that sense of the universal laws that uh-huh. um, that the universe is seems to depend on. More, he's not really, and he's not really talking about Dharma in the term of in the terms of everyday phenomena, although we've interpreted it that way. Well, I guess, oh, I'm sorry, please go ahead. I think he's basically saying that I've given you teachings. This is the Dharma you should rely on. I think it also, um, oh, excuse me. Uh, I I can certainly see that, but I guess what, what made me think, made me ask the question was because he says, even though you cannot explain Dharma, it is alive in you, so you can use it to take care of your life. That's right. Okay. So he's referring that that's referring to the teachings. Yeah. Is the to take care of your life is to burn the flame of your life force in everything you do. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, one, one other quick question, and then I'm done with questions for ten minutes. Huh. Oh. How Buddha's heart and mind, how would you describe that related to this life force? Are they the same thing? Are they very different? For me, I would say they're the, those are um, uh, our, our linguistic ways of trying to describe that life force, right? So we're bound up with language. And uh, so we have these terms, heart, and mind, and we think we know what they mean. Um, And then we encounter Buddhism and we realize, oh, our ideas of heart and mind are way too limited, right? The real um, teachings of Buddha's heart and mind are boundless. They're not attached to anything. So we might call them the, um, the radiant manifestations of that life force. That makes sense. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, can I add something to that, Peg? You know, I think uh, I I think that's really interesting. And you know, I when I read this, and I've I've read this you know, different versions of this passage and the final you know interaction, many of them. Um, you know, I'm I'm always struck by the focus on the contemplation element and the creative element. Mm-hmm. which I think really speak to the idea of the boundless energy and then the boundless nature of the universe and how we're cosmically linked to that and how I think it's encouraging us to be very creative and contemplative in our practice of the Dharma. Yeah. This, this sense of these um, teachings are a light. Um, they illuminate our lives something we can depend on. Um, and then the sense that you yourself are a light. And, uh, and so there's a congruence there. You're 
uh, life force and the teachings that the Buddha's offered us. This is also really revolutionary. Mm -hmm. Do not depend on anyone else. Yes. Um, Egg, I have a question. When that last sentence, when he's saying, do not depend on anyone else, is he saying, do not depend on anyone else's light? Their teaching of the Dharma? I think he was very concerned. And this is how we came to have the name Apamata because of that being his last instruction, right? To his followers, to be an island unto themselves. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, and a fair forward he, because they had asked him, should we follow this teacher? Should we follow that teacher? And he wanted to um, be clear that they, they weren't to just, you know, join up with another teacher, but they had all of the teachings that they needed um, to, to follow this course themselves. Okay. So it's kind of like that. Responsibility is ours to accept the teachings of wisdoms out there, but it's our <laughs> responsibility to embrace those teachings. Or Yes, and, and it certainly doesn't mean that you have nothing to learn from anybody else. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying you have to depend. You have to depend on your own discernment and your own uh, capacity to make use of whatever teachings you encounter. Right. And you have I to test them against your own experience. That's helpful. Thank you, Peg. I have a question. Would it be, could you explain it almost like, um, Buddhism is almost like, um, while you're contemplating the light and the wonder of the universe, don't forget it's also within you. Yes. Like that? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's like it's it's not something outside of you. That's why these two things have to be paired. So mm -hmm. if you just make of yourself a light and, and you only depend on yourself, um, there's very good chance that your conditioning will lead you astray. Right. I think there's yeah. about a hundred percent chance. <laughs> so that's why it has to be paired with make the Dharma your light. Right? Yeah. Right. If you just yeah. make the Dharma your light and you don't make of yourself a light then you're just a scholar. Right, yeah. Right? So I think he, these two statements have to be made together. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very profound statement. Yes. I really like it, yeah. Yeah, and, um, and that sense of rely upon it. Mm -hmm. It can be trusted. Yeah. I say something. Yes, of course. Why am I muted? No, okay. Well, I was just thinking, you know, about the different questions that were coming in. And I could not help and recall that actually the Buddha studied with so many different teachers. And even the last teacher, he seemed to be really very impressed, even though it was a dualistic teacher. And often then... In, in the Buddhist, uh, in the Pali Canon, we see that he will actually belittle uh, the group of the last teacher, uh, the Kalamas. Um, and I, I suppose uh, he probably then drew on 
his experience going around the different teachers and then almost succumbing to the last one till he suddenly realized that the duality really does not lead anywhere. I think he was determined not to let his followers get sort of distracted or led astray by other teachers. Well, yes, I, I agree very much with that. But I, I was thinking also that because he was going around, <laughs> mm -hmm, right, um, that they may want to, if they get stuck or whatever it is, that they mo may want to try too. Um, so yes, well, anyway, that, that was something that I mm -hmm. was thinking of mm -hmm. as the discussion went on. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Trouty. So it's amazing this thing survived with so many other teachers around. Well, it, it, to me, that's a sort of the testament to the quality of the teachings. I mean, but many of there sorry. were many stages, right, Trouty? They were they were all over the place. Yes, but many of the other teachers survived. The last teacher of, uh, of uh, the Buddha uh, actually survived in many different areas of uh, early Indian and even then in the developmental parts. Um, but we certainly can't say that they have millions of followers today, right? Well, many of the what we call now Hindu uh, religion that it, it is not one religion it's not one practice there's many many of them yeah and then there is lots of others i mean there are about nine large categories that have subcategories of religions nowadays When you think of it biologically, it's kind of interesting about these life forms, how they evolve and die off. And yet this one has uh, stayed steady, I assume, to its core teachings. I don't know if there's a parallel been, with biological evolution or not. And, and it's been relevant in so many different cultures, not just in India. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful teachings. And ironically, it seems as if um, uh, Gadamer actually discouraged the founding of a religion um, based on um, his teachings and is kind of pointing towards the idea of, of trust in the Dharma and your own you know, perspective. And yet so many different schools um, you know, kind of were born out of, out of this teaching just because of its, of its you know, dynamic quality. Mm -hmm. True. It strikes me so similar to scientific inquiry, and I know there's very difference also, but this whole thing of shared reality and a deeper um, honement of attention to something outside of ourselves. Um, for future, I'll ponder the scientific inquiry versus a Buddhist inquiry. Where do they parallel and where do they overlap and where do they diverge? Yeah, that's a great point, Chet. I mean, there's a lot of intersections and overlap, which hopefully we'll get to talk about with this book.
<laughs> I think so. Okay, who's next? I think it's me. Okay. This teaching from Mahaparanibbana Sutta in the Pali Canon shows a characteristic of Buddhism that is different from many other religions. Generally speaking, people want to believe there is some, something beyond ordinary human life. So in the history of religion, there is usually an almighty, how do you say that? Almighty. Almighty entity that people must believe in or in or a found or a founder with the special powers whose teachings people have to follow. But Buddha didn't say that after his death he should depend on a divine entity or holy teacher. He said you should depend on Dharma and yourself. If so, then what is Dharma? What is self? Be me reading next. Uh, Mitch, are you next? Um, okay. Uh, in Buddhism, we understand the term Buddha as the original energy of life. <clears throat> the term Dharma is understood as truth, the ultimate principle of existence. But this principle is not an abstract idea. It is something real. Dharma as real truth is the functioning of the Buddha way. The original energy of life constantly flows and unfolds as all the forms of everyday life. It means the form of your own life is identical with that original energy. In other words, truth is not in us. Truth is not on us. Truth is not with us. Truth is us. Truth is you. Truth is your real self. Depending on that self is depending on the Dharma. Many people believe that a spiritual being is something different from an ordinary human life. If that was so, depending on the Dharma could be depending on something mystical created by our imagination mythology or some divinity. But Dharma is not like that. We can depend on Dharma because Dharma is not something separate from human life. So in Buddhism, we practice a way of life based on the fact that truth is already alive in our lives and we can depend on it. But watch out. Depending on yourself doesn't mean you reject other people and do things your own way. Next page. It means you touch the core of your life and discover a life worth living. To reach the core of human life, we have to pay attention to the reality of our own existence and understand the meaning of life through our own lives. That is why Buddhism very naturally comes to be philosophical. But Buddhism is not a philosophy. The reality we study is not an idea created by philosophy, philosophical. 
psychological or mythological thought. It is something more than that. It is the natural, the natural state of your life before any thoughts or ideas arise. Buddhist teachings reveal the depth of your life and offer you a practical way to return to the source of your being. There you discover Dharma, real truth. Discovering Dharma is the realization of reality. You directly experience pure energy as the core of your own being, and you realize that you can always depend on it. If you depend on Dharma, pure energy will arise and appear in your everyday life. It will illuminate your life because the original energy of Buddha is alive within you. That energy gives forth its own light shining from your whole body, which others can see. So relax your frontal lobe, calm your mind, and practice dwelling peacefully in the dharma that is working deep in your own life. Sorry, we skipped Sancha. Oh, Sushank, okay. Yes, we're skipping. When dharma as truth or the ultimate principle of existence is described in Buddhist history, it becomes Buddhist teaching, which is also called dharma. So through the teaching, you can hear the truth dharma's message. Dharma teaching talks about wisdom and compassion based on impermanence and interdependence. Who's next? Uh, Chad, you want to read? Are, are you? Wait, wait, wait. Yes. Wait. I think it's it's Trouty, right? Well, Trouty. she's scared. I just read. Trouty oh, read, yeah. We kind of went out of order. Oh, okay, okay. And can I follow? I'm trying to follow how it goes around so I don't have to. And I, is it alphabetical and it just goes? Yes, yes. Yeah. With All some right. mistakes. But Kim, you're right in front of me. In my screen, the screens um, don't matter. You look at the participant list. Oh, I see. Okay, all right. That, that's what's uh, in alphabetical. Yeah, but in mine, it is not alphabetical. I, the list is different in different people's screens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Buddhist teaching is complicated, and practicing it every day is hard. But a spiritual being is something you can find right now, right here in you. This is the point of Shakit. Shakyamuni, Buddhist final, Buddha's final teaching. Through the actual practice of being with the true Dharma and burning the flame of your life force in whatever you do, you can realize what Shakyamuni Buddha was talking about. I have a question about, could you go back because I know he mentioned this the second time about the burning the fire. Okay, hold on. Where is that? Burning the, the fire of your life. Mm -hmm. So what, what is he's referring to that? The fire of your life? 
burning, the burning of the oh. cellular life, mm -hmm. the burning. He said easier to take care of your life is to burn the flame of your life force and everything you do. Was up to two pages back or two and a half pages back. No, no, it's the, par the paragraph that you just read. He mentioned that again. That's oh, here. Uh, yes. burning the flame of your life oh, force. Oh, yeah. Flame of your life force and whatever you do. I think it's I take it it's not burning in the sense of destroying. It's it, no, uh, I know, it, but being energized um, by. It, isn't it like wholehearted practice? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. The wholehearted practice. Yeah, that, that's what I got out of it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank There's you. a paragraph on page four, Sandra, that might be sort of what you're talking about. It says Shakyamuni Buddha taught a magnificent event is unfolding in every aspect of everyday life. Vivid living energy is constantly at work, creating and supporting your life. It is just like a fire that is eternal and boundless. Oh. Whoever you are, your life is very precious because the original energy of life is working in your life. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you then. I just wanted to say that uh, I really appreciate this reading. I feel like I have like a, a deeper understanding of what Dharma is. I mean, I thought I knew what Dharma was. <laughs> so should we uh, right now It's for 10 minutes? Yeah. I think we're at a good place. Yeah. So we'll write till 8.14. Kim, can you stop screen sharing? Yes, I can. Thank you for asking. Do, do we have a prompt? Well, I think, I think we have... Um, Light and light force are great prompts. And also, um, you know, for me, since we've been, some of us, most of us have been reading about silent illumination, I'm really curious about the difference between silent illumination and what we're reading about. So, Kim, we're taking 10 minutes to write about anything that we, we felt yes, during yeah. this reading. I'll, I'll share one thing. I knew I, I was trying to call on you, Chet. I, I, I waited as long as I could. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. I'm doing in a mathematical equation, you know, life force plus life equals this something. Mm -hmm. And uh, this something is uh, the life is the area that we have a touch point on. We don't really be able to control the life, you know, force, but our life is something we can actually, um, you know, co-create with. And so uh, I got this great equation that's probably going to be thrown out, but I love the idea and I love how this framed it is, um, you know, my conscious participation in whatever this life point is, 
if I want to affect change in my life, I can't affect change with the life force. That's just coming through me. But I do have this prism that I can use and try to be more aware of in how um, it affects what those two together yield. And I can either ignore that, and that's perfectly fine too, right? I just, it doesn't matter in, in an absolute sense. But if I do choose to participate, maybe I have a little bit of role in the codependent arising where I can make a little bit of impact in how I'd like to participate. And I see that as my big obligation and I'm um, trying to figure out how to do that better. But I, I love this whole introduction. And I love, uh, um, even though I haven't participated as much, but I'm 27 books y'all have gone through. I mean, what, what a profound shift in, um, in the world, right? With, with, you know, so pretty exciting. That's it for now. Thank you. Um, I have a question, but before I do, I have a, a preface. So as I said, writing, I have to constantly remind myself in our practice that form is, um, form is not separate from boundlessness. Boundlessness is not separate from form. And we keep referring to this life, but there really is no such thing as just this life. It's, it's all one and it's all interconnected and we just happy to be, happen to be embodied. So here's the question. Um, and I'm sure there's an answer, Peg. I know you have one. Hypothetically, if there is a situation you come across where there is another embodied self or selves, and, and it's a choice of their care, which is really care of everything, all, and your care, which is, again, care of everything or all. And there really isn't a tipping point one way or another. What does one do? Well, that's a hypothetical question. It is. The Buddha never, ever answered hypothetical questions. Okay. All right. I'll because, wait. For because it's something in the abstract. It can't really be answered. Okay. Or he answered them with a question, probably. Mostly he was silent. <laughs> mostly he was silent because it's not well formed so there isn't really an answer to that question right because you don't have all of the conditions that are arising in the situation right. everything is dependent on causes and conditions so okay. your only concern is what causes and conditions am i setting in motion by whatever action or thought or word i put into the situation right now right so and we can't know the outcome right all we can know is our intention. Thank but you. We can't, really, we can't even really know our intention without really solid meditation foundation. Mm. Because we easily get co-opted by our egoic um, intentions rather than our deepest intentions and aspirations. So yeah, so, so not to dodge the question, it's just not a question that can be answered that way. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. You can see um, the, the next book section is facing the question, what shall I do? So that's right. oh. <laughs> up to that exact same question, right? Right. I didn't, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah.
Yeah. I, I just want to say um, that I don't really have a question, Peg, but I want to say, and this always surprises me. I don't know why, but it does. And it's why I keep coming back. When we do these readings and then we write a little bit, there's always something that comes up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. that I, I can't believe how, how impactful that is in the way I'm thinking about my life and how I move in my life. And when we were talking about life force and the discussion around that, and I think Chet, you mentioned about, you know, well, do you channel it? And then Peg says, no, it's not something you channel. You know, you, you remove obstacles so that it's there. And I realized as I was writing how, how conditioned I am to think in duality and trying to write about this life force and how important it was, how I kept wanting to go to good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's so struggle between good and evil, the primal disease of the mind, right? Yeah. 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 To me, that's what reading these readings and discussion and writing does for me. It brings this out. Yeah. Yeah. So it thank you. Visible. Thank you all. Yeah. It makes it, makes it more visible. Yeah. Some yeah. of our assumptions, some of our um, distinctions that we're making that may not really hold water. Right. Right. Thank you. That's a really interesting point, Stephanie. Um, and, you know, it's easy to get in that trap. I, you know, I mean, everybody does it and it's, when we're talking about the Dharma, I think that's it's it can happen too when we start talking about ultimate truths and these kinds of dynamics, when that's an absolute, right? That's a duality mindset. And I mean, you know, one in some ways around that, I, I mean, I think are to think in these truths more as guidelines, because you know, it's talked here about as being a principle, right? And a principle and a truth are two different things, right? Um, a truth is something that can, can be proven. This is true, right? And but he, they're talking about truth as a principle, and a principle is something that is you act upon and do something with, right? As opposed to just kind of look at and say, "Well, that's true," right? So, um, anyways, I mean, it's just a perspective on it. I wrote about a different part of this um, discussion we've been having, which is this discussion of burning because I was struck by that. Um, I said the Buddha often used the metaphor of fire burning our candles and referring to that life energy that glows so brightly, um, illuminates and combusts, going out when its fuel is spent. He preferred, he referred to the differences between fires, grass fires, forest fires, and so on as a kind of elegant shorthand for the differences among people. So they, it's all fire, right? but it has these different qualities, right? Um, and his most famous use of fire is of course the fire sermon, which you all know, all is burning. I don't think he was speaking as some kind of prophet of doom, although we might think so in this age, right? Um, but of the fact that everything is combusting, flaring into existence from what? A match, a bolt of lightning, a lantern, a candle, which burns so brightly that it illuminates a whole room, a city, a cosmos. Then, spent, it naturally extinguishes. Where does the light go? Where is the flame? That was a common um, uh, reference and metaphor that the Buddha used in his teaching. I think because 
of course it was ready to hand and everybody knew what it meant. You know, everybody understood that phenomenon of fire. And energy is still conserved when it burns out. Energy has not disappeared, but the fire is still out. So where did this energy go and how is it still conserved and what kind of form is it in? Those are fascinating questions. Yeah. Fire was so different to those people and it was their lifeline for, for heat, for cooking, for, and, and the, all the rooms we're seeing that are lit evenly, they, they wouldn't be like that. In Judaism, there's, there's really neat stuff about uh, searching for, for gluten bread before Passover with a torch. And a torch is actually two candles that, with the wicks um, put together. And you're not supposed to search too carefully, but just, just enough. But anyway, the, the candles are, are really such an important part of their life. And the whole world, I think. So I don't think there's anything negative, like like you said, to, to this idea of burning. Mm -hmm, that's right. I did. Um, I did a drawing of um, silent illumination and and this what we're reading. So I will show that here. <laughs> it seems much more active as opposed to passive. What what he he this burning and this life force than that I'm seeing the silent illumination, which is is just stillness. Um, so I wrote, it seems we can look in or even just be aware of what we might be, but this is different in that it is lighting a fire underneath us. I feel more alive with this than silent illumination. It seems more active, where silent illumination is more passive, though. Is illumination just light? Is category noisy illumin light, uh, illumination? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I don't think of uh, silent illumination as passive because I don't think of it as an activity. It's a quality. Um, but it's a quiet quality, isn't it? I don't, I don't even think you can say that. Oh. Uh, no. So then I've, maybe I've been misinterpreting it, but, you know, well, I'm I sure I have. Been misinterpreting it, I just have a different view. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, I know I'm still stuck and it's something you do rather yeah. than something you are. Yeah. And trying to get away from that because. Uh, I think it's describing it, the same life force, but just with different language. Mm -hmm. Because if you go looking for this life force, what do you find? Well, what came to mind was yourself. That would be uh, the ego's view. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then there's the, the answer, nothing. And everything. <laughs> right away, you fall into the snare of language, right? Uh, that's true. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that to light, so to speak, Kim, because that was actually my first question that I circled. So is this life force equal silent illumination? Because they sound so similar to me. I think that um, the difference is that you might think energetically that the term life force 
has a direction and silent illumination doesn't appear to have a direction. Mm -hmm. But it's really the same. It's how life is directing that life force that determines the direction. And Peg, things like the precepts help us to direct the life force in a, a way that's not harmful? Well, I think it um, helps us stay aligned with our aspiration for non-harming. Okay. Many of us don't necessarily think of ourselves that way, or we don't um, think about our impact at all. Um, so it's partly bringing to mind and creating awareness around our impact. I think that passage that speaks to that, Peg and Ellen, really an interesting one for me, which I wrote about was when he's talking about your internal story that you, mm -hmm. how you perceive yourself. And, you know, it's, it's really easy to, you know, obviously think too much for yourself, like, oh, wow, I've done all these amazing things. I've got this good story. And there's also the equal, equally easy to go, hey, I've done all these horrible things. What a horrible person I am. But when you remove yourself from that ego and you create the space, it allows you in each moment to recreate yourself. And really, I think that's a central tenet of, of the Dharma. And my, my thinking is that we're constantly able to recreate ourselves in each moment. And that's an exciting thing that speaks to life force. Yeah, we just have to be careful that we're not just looking to create a new story, a better story. Mm -hmm. Story of me as an enlightened being instead of a story of me as the bastard I think I <laughs> exactly right. It's easy to fall into that trap, right? Yeah, sure. yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's it's you know it's just fascinating the depths of the practice because you keep uncovering these layers of meaning and uh, constructs that uh, that you're animated by. You know, so yeah. So I think this is um, such a wonderful benefit of our sitting practice is that these, you know, I've considered um, from the time we're in the womb, we're in a training program. So if you understand that, they understand that all the mistakes you made, all the bad judgments you had, all of that part of the training program. And the reason they're part of the training program is you came to recognize them as mistakes, right? Or, or harmful in some way or destructive in some way, right? So you're in this training program and sometimes you're faring fairly well, you're sort of grasping things, you know, and uh, then you get a tough lesson and you blow it and, you know, as part of the training program. So we're moving on in the training program. So it's not, a, it's not, it doesn't have the um, same moral valence of saying, well, this was a bad thing I did and this was a good thing that I did, or um, this is where I was really brilliant and this is where I really screwed up. It's more like, oh, that was a tough training pro. That was the training in patience. Oh, you know, oh, that was the training in generosity. And I sort of missed that opportunity, but mm. so, yeah. Yeah, so when I, once I started thinking about everything as a training program, then I could just ask the question, what is this training in? I'm, in, I'm stuck in traffic. I guess this is the training in patience and yeah. creative awareness. <laughs> is, is it possible to get off the training program? No. Is that part of the Buddhist practice? No, but it, it is possible to be completely confused about it, about the fact that you're yeah. in a training program, yeah. right? So uh, you're well, still, like I've, one I've, of these kind of hapless recruits. You don't get it. Well, I get the, the bias always of my own training programs of what I'm focused, I thought I learned or how I'm improving. And then, but 
but I never be, can see the fullness of the unbiased perspective mm -hmm. of myself. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you, that's exactly right. It's very difficult. And this is why we help each other. This is why we have Sangha. We get multiple reflections, not that one is more correct even than our own internal understanding, but we get more reflections of how we're impacting people by our, our thoughts and our words and our actions. So it's super helpful. It's scary it's, too. Yeah, it is. It's scary. Yeah, you, you, it makes you vulnerable. But that's part of the training program. Mm -hmm. That's the training in vulnerability, right? When yeah. I can be courageous enough to see it and be on that for a moment. Yeah. I very much like the, um, the point that you kind of emphasized about uh, being able to trust that which is in within us. Um, because so often I, I don't trust the Dharma um, because sometimes I think perhaps there's like a, a structure, several structures that I build that are um, maybe histories or habits or stories that I tell myself that this is not to be trusted. Um, that your and I do experience isn't to be trusted or that the teachings aren't to be trusted. Uh, the inner Dharma yeah. is not to be trusted. Yeah. And, and um, that is something I think that I'm very comforted by to remember that like uh, just sitting and being with, with it. Um, I, that's kind of the path to developing that trust. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. And sometimes it takes a long time to really establish the trust. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, I think our time is up. Time is up. Yes. But, but thank you all for coming. So I don't want to leave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Thank you, everyone. Till next week. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Thank Bye. you, everyone.